is the NT Country Hour on ABC Radio Darwin and the Northern Territory. G'day there, my name's Matt Brand, welcome to the program. Today we take a look at a $1 billion deal that is set to electrify Australia's mining sector. Mining companies have set very aggressive targets around being uh, carbon neutral. This is an easy pathway to get there quickly. Also today, how are Territory cattle stations going in terms of finding enough workers? So I think the hardest thing probably for um, what I have found for this year would be finding headstock people. Um, so they don't seem to be existing. And the owners of Australia's most expensive bull are now selling his semen. How much is it worth? You'll find out. Of course you'll find out on the Country Hour today. We're broadcasting right across the Territory on ABC Radio. And if you do need to duck out into the paddock for whatever reason, you can always download our podcast and listen at a time that suits you. Now, imagine sitting down this lunchtime at a dinner table and getting to taste and judge the finest Wagyu beef that this nation has to offer. The Australian Wagyu Association's branded beef competition. It's on today and it's attracted a record amount of entries. To tell us more about it is Matt McDonough, who is the chief executive of the Wagyu Association. Uh, this competition, Matt, what can you tell us? So each year, the Australian Wagyu Association runs a brand of beef competition, uh, engaging all the top Wagyu brands across Australia. So we have uh, this year 57 different branded entries. So they're brands that are usually targeted export supply chains. And we have a range of categories from full blood Wagyu, which is 100% Japanese genetics that we can trace all the way back to genetics uh, in Japan. And we have purebred Wagyu, uh, which is basically 94, 95% of Wagyu genetics. And then we have a range of open crossbred categories where we can have extremely high marvel scores from crossbreeding animals all the way down to our fifth category, which is our commercial Wagyu steak category, which is marvel score five to seven which is basically targeted at, um, at food service and Wagyu. Let's talk about that top one, class one full-blood Japanese black steak. What is that like to eat? Uh, it, it just blows your mind. It's an incredible eating experience. Anybody that's been to Japan or, or had some of the full-blood Wagyu out of Australia, which is basically 100% Japanese genetics anyway, it is just a different level of eating experience. So... You, you'll all be aware that the Ozmeat Marble Score system goes from zero to nine, and we use Japanese digital cameras on these carcass entries. And this year, we've had an entry over Marble Score 18 as measured by the camera. So that's not on the Ozmeat scale, but it's calibrated against Ozmeat. And if you continue that relationship between marbling and Ozmeat, uh, with these samples, we can get them up to 18, which is just a phenomenal piece of meat. And at that point, they're 60% intramuscular fat. So more than half of that muscle is actually that soft, unique, fine marbling that comes through with Wagyu. And because it's highly unsaturated, it literally melts in your mouth and gives that beautiful, unique eating experience. And how many Australian Wagyu producers are now producing that type of category? 
So we have 10 brands that have submitted entries in our full blood category this year. So we've had 10 entries and certainly an increasing proportion of the Wagyu we produce. We certainly have the predominance of Wagyu produced in Australia is still what we call F1, which is a first cross Wagyu. Normally that's a Wagyu sire over an Angus cow, like a high marbling Angus cow. Gives us a very solid marble score six outcome on average and then the closer you get to full blood Wagyu, those averages go up a lot. So uh, we are seeing that the industry is certainly moving in the direction of still having a high percentage of F1 and crossbred products. It's the predominance of the, the brands that we produce, but we're seeing now more and more entry of very, very high quality full blood Wagyu genetics. At this competition, how much pressure is on the chef there, Matt, to, uh, I guess, cook everything to perfection but also get consistency? <laughs> Enormous. There was uh, quite, you can imagine, we're cutting up 60 um, full strip loin entries from the leading Wagyu brands in Australia. These entries are worth, you know, over $150 a kilo and, you know, there's 9 to 10 kilos of meat in each of these strip loins. The strip loins themselves are worth, you know, over $1,000. And the chefs are doing their utmost to prepare these with precision. We, we work with a slicing, an automatic, automatic slicing unit that slices all the steaks precisely to 25 millimetres. And then we take a cooking block out of the centre of that, uh, which is basically a 10 centimetre by 6 centimetre cooking block from every steak. So every steak is cut to exactly the same dimensions and then the chefs that we use um, work very hard to ensure that every single piece of meat is cooked at exactly the same surface temperature, exactly the same internal temperature uh, for exactly the same time. So very, very rigorous. rigorous. The, uh, the sweat that's coming off these guys in the kitchen <laughs> is part nerves because they're doing their utmost the people grading these entries are some of Australia's leading cattlemen, uh, some of Australia's leading chefs, and some of Australia's leading food experts. So there's a lot on the line uh, for the chefs preparing the product for these guys. And, yeah, the perspiration is stress-induced, uh, but also they're working frantically to, uh, to make sure that they produce these entries to the judges in a very precise manner. I think the judges have definitely got the better job here. Is it easy to explain to us what they are looking for? It's fair to say we don't have to pay the judges much to show up. Uh, they're doing it out of love of the product and uh, there's nowhere else in the world that I think you get to sit down and experience you know, an enormous number of super high-quality Wagyu products like this head-to-head so it's a really unique eating experience. The judges are very much looking at four categories. So we have the flavour of the product, uh, the juiciness of the product. So when you first bite into that sample, what's your mouthfeel experience from the explosion of flavours that come out of that Wagyu sample? So you're getting a mixture of that unsaturated intramuscular fat and that beautiful sweet beefy juiciness. That's that unique characteristics of Wagyu. You get that. Uh, they measure that juiciness and flavour, and then they're measuring tenderness of the sample. So as they continue to bite and chew through, how yielding is it? Um, you know, is there any toughness characteristics, which is highly unusual with Wagyu of that marbling level? And then 
and then finally they assess the visual characteristics of that steak. So after everybody's eaten their samples, we number those numerically and then when they go and look at the visual sample, it's numbered alphabetically. So uh, there's no way that they can cross-reference what they've eaten with what they see. Right. So we get an unbiased representation of basically the the taste and the mouthfeel and the eating experience of that beautiful Wagyu product. And then when they look at that visual appearance, you know, they can then reward the steaks that they believe, you know, approach that perfection for Wagyu. If you're tuning in, this is The Country Hour, and we are speaking to Matt McDonough, who is the Chief Executive of the Australian Wagyu Association. Its branded beef competition is on this week. The winners will be announced in April. What can it mean for a branded beef business to win this award? It means a lot. Uh, we've seen in recent years, you know, people that win this category or champion category or uh, overall grand champion, you know, it's almost bringing them to tears with delight when, when they're able to be recognised by industry for producing the best quality Wagyu that Australia has to offer. So it's, it's extremely, there's extremely linked to pride and, uh, and satisfaction for the whole supply chain that produces, you know, that product. But also we see that, you know, the artwork that we provide, so the gold medals uh, for individual products, you know, the champion medals that they get, the digital artwork goes onto their brands and those, those brands are promoted as being, you know, gold medalists or category champions all around the world. So it's extremely high penetration when it comes to market influence, which is great. Um, but for us, it, you know, as an industry supporting the Wagyu sector, it's just great to see that satisfaction and recognition from peers that, you know, a brand has achieved that level of, of um, success within our brand of beef competition. And Matt, when we look at the general cattle market at the moment, prices have been falling since November. Has Wagyu been on that slide as well? Look, it's... Um, it very much behaves as a unique market category. Uh, we've certainly seen, and it's been reported, you know, Wagyu F1 prices have been, you know, around that $10 mark uh, for quite a long period over the last couple of years with, you know, sustained high grain prices and general pressures within the market. That, that price has come back, I would say slightly. Um, we're seeing... Slight movements in Wagyu price compared to the significant movements that have been seen in other cattle categories. Mm. And just finally, for our Northern Territory audience, any beef getting served up this week that may have spent time in the, the grasses of the Northern Territory? Look, we have Wagyu that spend their lives all the way from the Northern Territory and up in the Pilbara uh, down to the bottom of Tasmania. So it's a really interesting thing with Wagyu cattle, their ability to um, be successful in a grazing environment in all of Australia's grazing conditions, which some of which are the most diverse and challenging on earth for trying to produce productive beef cattle. And in the north, producers like using Wagyu because it does lift that fertility in their females, their retained females significantly. Wagyu's are incredibly fertile. They come out of intensive production systems in Japan where that cow needs to have a calf every year of her life for 20 years or she gets her head cut off. So that 
fertility is just bred into them as part of their management. And we certainly see the benefits of that in Australia. We are introducing Wagyu cattle into non-Wagyu herds. Pregnancy rates are going up significantly and calves weaned go up significantly. So um, that's a great outcome. Uh, and because of that, there's probably over 100,000 Wagyu, Wagyu cross animals across uh, northern top end of Australia. And we certainly see representation from those genetics in past branded beef competitions. From what we've done this year, we've taken a genomic DNA sample from every entry and we're able to determine that. So at the moment, uh, I can't tell you categorically that we have mm. Northern Territory genetics represented, but we'll certainly be able to find out and I'll get back to you. Enjoy your lunch, Matt McDonough, and thank you so much for your time on the Country Hour. No worries, Matt. I always enjoy my lunch when there's Wagyu involved and uh, more than happy. <laughs> Matt McDonough, he is the Chief Executive of the Australian Wagyu Association. Its branded beef competition is on today. Wouldn't you love to be a judge? I'm feeling hungry. I've got a text here that says there's a heart attack in every steak. Yes, some pretty serious marbling in some of that beef. The winners of this competition will be announced at a special dinner event in Sydney on April 19. And Matt's told me that cattle producers from all over Australia are invited to come along. They want as many people as possible. If you are interested, get in touch with the Australian Wagyu Association. My name's Ashley from Bam Bam Spring Station. I'm Jacqueline Dakin from Anthony Lagoon. I'm Georgie from Catherine. And you're listening to the Country Hour. <laughs> well, as you know, right across Australia, in a bunch of industries, businesses are calling out for more staff. But in what could be a promising sign for the North's cattle industry, Station Recruitment Officer Anna Brown says she's seen an uptick in applications from people looking to find work on Territory stations. Although, she says, it has been hard trying to find people to fill some of those more experienced roles. Most people will start looking for station hand um, applications starting from anywhere from August to September from the year before. So for this year's recruits, that would have happened last year in September and August. So that all filled very quickly across the um, across the territory with the corporates and the smaller companies and the privates. So I think the hardest thing probably for um, what I have found for this year would be finding headstock people. Um, so they don't seem to be existing very much. So you have to get in very early with those key positions. Station cooks have been quite tough as well. Um, you know, there isn't many around, but there is a, a great company now that's um, d uh, organising cooks in the Territory, which is such a good, a big relief. But someone's, um, you know, working all, all through that. Um, so the key positions, um, I think there's been quite a few, man few management changes this year in the Territory too, and I think that's been um, quite hard to fill. But I think it could just be the timing, um, you know, just a pattern. So next year it might all be easier. So it's hard to judge on... Um, how it's going to roll out in the future. But across the board, it sounds like there's plenty of applications then for station hand jobs and those kinds of roles. 
there's been amazing um, applications for station hands. So for female and male applications are coming through. Females probably more than than males, but um, yet there's plenty plenty of great applicants out there that have got um, good experience. And who is applying? Where where are these people coming from? Um, they're, well, they're coming from everywhere. So what I've seen has been a lot through Queensland, New South Wales, and um, South Australia. So it's actually um, it's actually been really good. I've been really happy with the applicants this year. I'm, I'm really surprised a lot of them, you know, have got good skills, or you know, they're still green, but they have got good basic skills. It's just whether they stay in the industry or not, and that's what you'd hope to see that um, you know people can retain these um, applicants or these kids to stay and at least do, you know, a couple of years um, in the industry, I think is probably what we really got to look at. So a lot of applicants with some prior experience or kind of yep. rural background. Yeah, and, yep. and that have an interest um, in the land, have come from the land, but still also interested kids that haven't got the experience that would like to have a go um, and, and see whether, you know, it's something that they might like. Are you getting many backpackers applying for, for station roles? Yes. Yes, lots and lots and lots of backpackers. So they're coming through thick and fast um, and really are looking for that 88 day to uh, tick off their visa. So lots and lots of backpackers. There's no shortage of backpackers. And what types of people are stations looking for um, generally? Well, I don't know whether so many backpackers. I mean, they do employ backpackers just depending on what, um, you know, for domestic um, or gardening positions, uh, cooking, maybe stock camp cooking in the stock camp. Um, I'm not. Sh- I haven't really had any ones coming through as station hand, um, but you know, also some of them with uh, in WA. You know, there's some farm hand positions. So some of them coming through with tractor driving and um, horticultural experience are coming through. So a good variety of them actually. And the types of applications you're seeing at the moment. How, how has that changed over the time you've been in the industry? Um, well, when well, so when I first started, I guess I was probably one. You know, a uh, I started off as a domestic and then worked way through to a station hand position. So I think um, it's got a lot more popular um, over the years. Like it's it was very popular. Um, I think it was sort of a bit of the unknown back in my day. There wasn't many um, female station hands or jewelrys we called them back then. But it's got more and more popular. So I think it's got more and more popular. Um, it's obviously social media is playing a big part in what's happening today. I mean, everyone's advertising on social media. So the power of social media is very big. Um, and you can see everyone puts their ads up on their Facebook pages. So that's become massive. And they've got big, some you know, of these companies and social media platforms have got massive following. So it's got very popular from when I, you know, all the way through. Lots of changes, but become very popular. That's Anna Brown, who runs a recruitment agency, speaking to Max Rowley, and she says applications to work on cattle stations is on the up, which is great. Unfortunately, that has not been the experience for Curtin Springs Station, which is about 100 kilometres east of Uluru. Lindy Severin says she's been looking for more workers for the station's cattle and tourism operations, and she told Victoria Ellis it has not been easy. The last 12 months have been horrendous as far as access to staff um, is concerned and we we just don't think it's going to get any better over the next 12 months. We think we're probably another full 12 months away from any sort of regular access to um, the staff that we need and that's across both sides of the business, the tourism side of the business and then certainly the station as well. 
And how many staff do you currently have and how many would you ideally have? So we're currently sitting on uh, seven. Um, Our normal quiet time numbers are usually about 12. And during the, the busy tourist season, we can have up to 25. So we're running on absolute base level um, at the moment. And yes, it is still the quiet season. You know, the summer is the quiet season as far as tourists are concerned. Uh, coming to the desert in the, in the summer is not always everybody's first choice. Um, so, you know, there's, there's a bit of saving grace around that. But we expect that, you know, the middle of March uh, will start to pick up again and things like the phones and the email inquiries will start before then so that starts to just kick things along a little bit Um, but you need to be able to deal with those you need to be able to respond to emails you need to be able to take bookings you need to be able to answer visitors questions and it's really important that they actually get to speak to a person if somebody's planning a an adventure to the Red Centre, then there are questions that they've got that you need to be able to answer and um, the phone will start to kick off fairly soon, I think, for most tourism operators uh, and that's going to put extra pressure on our current staffing levels. What what measures have you gone to to try to recruit staff? How far, how far have you looked and how hard have you had to try? <laughs> I think if you asked any business in Australia at the moment, they'd go, you know, we've done everything. We've done everything that you could possibly do. You've done paid advertising. You've done, um, you know, websites like Seek and Indeed and all of those. You've put stuff up on your own website and Facebook pages. We've actually gone um, and we've employed staff under the Seasonal Worker and the Pacific Labor Scheme, which are uh, schemes that we hadn't used up until now. Uh, But certainly when you think about it, it makes perfect sense that there's a lot of Islander staff um, that work in the hospitality sector that during COVID were displaced because there weren't any cruise ships operating. There weren't any um, resorts operating in Vanuatu or Fiji or anywhere like that. So there is quite a pool of hospitality staff available under those programs. So we've got some staff um, under those. And I have to say that's been our saving grace. But they're short, you know, they have a turnover. Um, They're not long-term permanent staff. And we don't always need long-term permanent staff. but you, you also need to have a mix of skills and you need high level skills. Uh, you know, I need an office manager. I need a shift manager. Um, I, I need some of those longer term, higher level skills to take the pressure off me um, and be able to operate the business the way that we want it to, to operate. So it's not just those customer-facing frontline skills that everybody's short. Um, It's the middle-level management as well. Uh, And that's where there's a a big gap, I think, for most businesses in Central Australia. And just how much financial pressure is that putting you guys under? The last last few years have been tough. Um, Two years of COVID and then uh, certainly last year we, we did have some coming through the door and uh, you know it was a reasonable season for what uh, what we for the staffing we had available um, 
But most businesses in the region uh, have, certainly in the tourism sector, have had to increase debt. So we've got an increased debt, we've got increased uh, interest rates, we've got huge increases in all of our overheads. Um, insurance, one of our insurance premiums went up $40,000 this year, um, which was, you know, almost a 40% increase. So, uh, you know, they're... Increase in super, increase in wages, increase in fuel costs in every single product uh, that we buy uh, to have a cold drink to sell to someone, to produce a meal, um, all of those input costs have gone up. So those prices have to be passed on. We cannot absorb them. Um, they have to be passed on. And you then reach a point where you've got some um, price sensitivity for customers. Central Australia is an expensive destination to come to at the best of times, um, and you're you're adding extra costs on. Then it's a real balancing act uh, for ourselves and for the customers. That is Lindy Severin of Curtin Springs Station. If you are listening to the Country Hour this afternoon and are looking for a job, why not call Curtin Springs, a beautiful part of Australia to live and work in. Hello, my name is Chris Zolis. I'm the Managing Director of Verted Minerals, the owner of the Amaru Phosphate Project on Amaru Station, south of Tennant Creek, and you're listening to The Country Hour. Matt Brown with you this afternoon. Is the diesel ute about to become extinct on Australian mine sites? Mining companies have set very aggressive targets around being carbon neutral. This is an easy pathway to get there quickly. Yeah, in a moment, we'll take a look at a $1 billion deal that really could change the look of Australian mines. And the owners of Australia's most expensive ever bull are now selling its semen. Some straws were up for sale this week in Queensland. What sort of money did they fetch? You'll find out soon. Let's go to the Weather Bureau. Rebecca Patrick is there this afternoon. And, Beck, looks like there's still a little bit of moisture around the Barkley and that border country as we go to air. Yeah, that's right. So, um, yeah, pretty much the same area that we were watching yesterday about this time. So that southeastern part of the Barkley, uh, we are getting some storm activity developing through that area at the moment um, across the border at Urundanji, they've already had 40 millimetres um, out of storms there. So pretty similar environment on the NT side. Yes. So you would imagine and assume similar falls are happening on the territory side of the border, but unfortunately it's the land of no official rain gauges. Yeah, that's right. So, um, yeah, we're expecting some reasonable rainfall um, through that part uh, today. Yep. Um, so, yeah, could be some warnings coming out. In terms of rain gauges, is it true that Millingimby Airport has received 108 millimetres in 24 hours? Yes, indeed. Um, mm. So there has been a lot of shower and storm activity off of the north coast um, over the last 24 hours or so. And Millingimby just happened to sit under some um, an area of... Uh, pretty steady showers and storms for about three hours in the early hours of this morning. So yeah, picked up 108 millimetres. Um, 
But yeah, it's funny because the the next highest rainfall that we've got in our list was Cape Wessel, uh, which is not that far away, but only received 13 millimetres, so Mm. quite a difference. What's the latest you can tell us about the monsoonal trough and a potential burst later on in the week? Yeah, so at the moment we've just got a a bit of a weak trough hanging around um, the northern Gulf of Carpentaria um, and into the top end. Uh, That is expected to deepen over the weekend, so developing into more of a monsoon trough as we get more of a a stronger northwesterly flow through the Arafura Sea. Um, So over the coming days, we are expecting an increase in that shower and storm activity um, with potential for some heavier falls as well across the top end, um, particularly as we go into the weekend. Okay. Over in the west, Cyclone Freddy is a Category 3, tipped to become a Category 4, but just continues to head west, way, way out to sea. And over in Queensland, that system's still a tropical low, but I've got here, back that uh, it could become a cyclone, a Category 2 cyclone by this evening. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, that's right. So that one is um, is deepening quite quickly. Um, so, yeah, we'd be expecting um, some advice of, of naming of that one. Um, later on today. Okay. Would you rule out the Territory getting its own cyclone come the weekend? Uh, at this stage, we might have a, a low develop across the top end or mm-hmm. potentially in the Gulf of Carpentaria, um, but it is looking pretty weak. Um, so, yeah, we'll get some increased rainfall and, and probably some increased winds as well, um, uh, particularly if you're planning on getting out on a boat, do check for any strong wind warnings as um, likelihood of that might be happening in some areas. Um, but, yeah, not expecting a cyclone to develop for the NT. Anything else we need to be aware of, Beck? I think that's uh, that's covered most of it. Um, yeah, just the... The thunderstorms in the Barkley today and then increasing rainfall across the top end in coming days. Wonderful. Have a good afternoon. No worries. Thanks, Matt. Nominations are now open for Farmer of the Year with 10 categories spanning all ages and stages of life on the land. Let's recognise the hard work of our rural leaders, innovators and farming legends and celebrate those in our rural sector who go above and beyond. You can enter yourself or someone you know at farmeroftheyear.com.au. Proudly supported by the Condinen Group and ABC Rural. It is ten past one. Diesel utes could be on the way out at Australian mine sites following a $1 billion agreement between C Electric and the company Mevco. This deal will see more than 8,000 Toyota Hilux and Land Cruiser utes converted to electric vehicles. Michelle Stanley takes a look. On mine sites across Australia, whether it's coal, iron ore, lithium or gold, one thing they all have in common is diesel. But there are moves to displace Australia's diesel ute fleet with electric alternatives. The, the demand for, for infrastructure companies and mining companies is huge. Bill Gillespie is the Asia-Pacific president for Sea Electric. It's a company building electric vehicles in Australia. It's, it's ramped up in the past 12 months. It's gone from almost nothing to companies saying, listen, if you can make an electric Hilux or an electric ute of any type, we will order at scale because we need to do it straight away. Sea Electric and Mevco, the mining electric vehicle company, announced plans for a $1 billion deal. 
to convert 8,500 Toyota Utes to electric. As part of the deal, C will source the vehicles, convert them in Australia at a factory in Victoria and potentially also New South Wales. Mevco has committed to watering all 8,500 units over the next five years and will work with the mining industry across the country to on-sell the vehicles and provide operational support. Currently, C's manufacturing 150 electric trucks in Dandenong and now hopes to convert up to 4,000 vehicles per year. Bill Gillespie says the agreement signifies a major scale-up in the company's operations. We're not a start-up anymore. We are, as we, we refer to as a scale-up business now, and this is part of that scale-up in Australia. The vehicles involved in this deal will be Hilux and Land Cruiser Utes. Bill Gillespie says they'll focus on two configurations with two C-drive options. The 4x2 and then the 4x4, so obviously for mining, and they'll be specified with two uh, drive systems. We call them a C-drive, that's a branded drive, but two uh, options, an 88 kilowatt hour battery, which is a nearly 400 kilometres of range, and then a smaller 60 kilowatt hour battery with about 250 kilometres of use. They're pretty fast chargers. The 88 kilowatt hour battery, if you put, the, put it on a fast charge, you're looking at about 90 minutes or under in terms of charging. Mevco CEO Matt Carr says the difference between this conversion and a typical electric vehicle you might see driving in inner city street will be talk. Most of all the architectures of electric vehicles are focused on a vehicle taking off at a rapid speed. What we were looking for was exactly the opposite. We're looking for a high torque or high carrying capacity of the vehicle so that it can maintain speed on steep uh, declines and climbs and carry heavy loads, trailers, uh, men, etc, etc. So where will they end up? Well, Matt Carr wouldn't give me specifics, but over half of this year's allocation has already been pre-sold. What's really interesting to us is that the mining companies certainly have very large fleet requirements. I think there's about 25,000 Hiluxes per year sold into mining, but mining services is about three times that in terms of the number of vehicles used to support mining operations. So you're not necessarily signing a deal with Rio Tinto or BHP or Mineral Resources, for example, but with those companies which service those mines? Well, I think it's all of the above and a whole lot of names that you didn't mention. You know, obviously we're not at liberty to, to disclose specific names, but I can assure you that pretty much every major marquee mining company brand that is well known to Australians are definitely in, in and on the list somewhere. Matt Carr says there's huge interest across Australia's resources sector in reducing carbon emissions and switching vehicles from diesel to electric will be part of that. So I think it's, it's, it's really, really important. So for starters, mining companies have set very aggressive targets around being uh, carbon neutral. This is an easy pathway to get there quickly with the light commercial vehicles. Uh, where it doesn't impact production. You know, there's a lot of good reasons here for a mining company to go green. You know, everything from the employee workplace through to their investors, uh, you know, at, uh, at stock level. Bill Gillespie says the upfront cost of a C electric vehicle could be as much as three times that of a diesel alternative. But in the long run, he says the operational costs are far lower. One of our uh, last mile logistics companies in Melbourne that, that uses two of these vehicles 
they're saving $45 per day on the diesel that they would normally use. So, yes, the vehicle costs them uh, three times as much, but they have the vehicle over five years. They do 250,000 kilometres. And if you work out, obviously, um, you know, 250 working days per year by $45 per day on diesel saving, the OPEX side more than negates the upfront capital equipment costs. Given manufacturers like Toyota are yet to announce plans to offer electric vehicle alternatives to utility vehicles like Hiluxes and Land Cruisers, Sea Electric says it has a large amount of interest from businesses keen to make the switch sooner rather than later. But in the long run, Bill Gillespie doesn't think Australia will ever entirely let go of its hold on diesel. Look, I think it's going to still be a mixture. You know, I I think there are still applications on mine sites where diesel or a hybrid approach will work and will still be acceptable using clean diesel. There's also talk about obviously hydrogen being a solution. So I think there's a range of different solutions. So I don't think at any point anyone thinks that suddenly overnight all of the utes on Australian mines are going to be electric. I think it's a transition. That is Bill Gillespie from Sea Electric and in that report by Michelle Stanley. Electrifying Australia's mining fleet. Not everyone is convinced. I've got a text here that says electric Hilux at mine sites, all charged by diesel generators. Our text number is 0487 991057. We are off to Queensland next. Figure out buy me a motorcycle. Figure out buy me a motorcycle. Figure out buy me a motorcycle. 20 past one, you are tuned into the Country Hour. Let's head to Queensland for a wrap of the big country Brahmin sale. There were some big dollars paid for bulls and some incredible prices paid for semen. Straws from Australia's most expensive ever bull sold for $2,400 each. Lucy Cooper reports. The big country Brahmin sale at Charters Towers in North Queensland lives up to its name. Big bulls, big hats and big checkbooks. The first multi-vendor bull sale of the year for Queensland wrapped up yesterday afternoon and with some cracking results. It wasn't just the animals themselves up for grabs, but also their semen, which had many people talking. NCC Justified is the the dearest bull ever sold in Australia, 325,000. I think it was a few years ago at the NCC sale and Elro's Elro's stud brought brought the bull and he's done a great job for, for Roger and family there and they thought it was time to release it to everyone else so the rest of the rest of the world get opportunity to uh, to get get the use of the of the bull $2400 per straw so the 10 straws will be a total of $24000 that's Sean Flanagan Queensland rural sale convener for big country and you heard him right $24000 for 10 straws of semen It will be put to use into IVF programs and given the advancement of embryo technology, one straw of semen can now produce 10 calves each. Lawson Cam of Campbell Brahmins in Proserpine says these genetics in the north are extremely important for the future quality of the industry. The, the genetics is very important to us. It, it, we, um, we, it's what we rely on to breed um, you know, the superior cattle. Um, uh, there's been a, a lot of emphasis on the on the last few years on breeding animals that are polled um, and that 
one bull that sold. The, some of the high price bulls today were all pole bulls. So producers are looking for that uh, for those polar genetics. Poly being poly no horns. So we so um, tr- sort of um, breeding the, the horns off them, so we don't have to so that we don't for the welfare of the animals and and um, the safety of of um, producers that the animals um, don't don't grow any horns. So it's um, so the demand for for pole genetics. Um, especially up here in uh, northern Australia over the last few years, um, has definitely increased. There were some big bucks from the bulls in the pens and big bucks being splashed around at the sale. The top red Brahmin sold for $160,000 and the top grey sold for 170000 to Chatfield Brahmins of Charters Towers. The top bull was sold by Catherine McKenzie, co-owner of Arizona Stud, which is located 75 kilometres north of central Queensland town Dingo, along the McKenzie River. She says she was blown away by the sale results. Uh, So we bought six bulls to um, big country this year. Um, Our lead bull was um, Arizona Sir Presley, and he broke the northern big country record which I, my husband and my children and myself are just absolutely blown away. We never ever expected um, for, for that to ever happen. Like it's just unbelievable. There does seem here at big country that there is a fair confidence in, in the industry. Um, but Sarah Presley was a bull that he was PP, he had a beautiful siry head. He was correct in a lot of ways. He ticked a lot of stud masters' boxes. Um, and he was just a general all-round good bull and we were very, very proud to present him to the, to the auction today. Catherine McKenzie from the Arizona Stud in central Queensland speaking to Lucy Cooper. So let's learn a bit more about this business, which forked out $24,000 to buy 10 semen straws. So remember, this was semen from the most expensive bull ever sold in Australia. The straws were bought by Mark and Pam Pritchard, who run cattle near Ravenswood in North Queensland. Pam says she has long been impressed by that bull. I like the type of him, and obviously he sold extremely well when he was sold as a young bull, and we're just you know, we're a new stud and genetics are certainly our main focus. And I, um, yeah, I was pretty happy to be able to purchase those straws and have them in our inventory. I know there was uh, a bit of excitement leading up to the sale because he was Australia's most expensive bull ever sold. How much were you prepared to pay when you went into the auction? Uh, oh, without a figure, a, a little bit more, but we were close to budget. And what's the plan now, now you've got the straws? We'll utilise them with IVF, so to maximise um, the number of calves and, and um, you know, progeny that we can achieve from those 10 straws, and we'll use them over very good cows. So hopefully the progeny that we produce will be um, valuable to us and other studs down the track. And what was it about... Um, specifically getting semen from Justified that was so appealing to you? Uh, well, um, his, uh, his, his history, so his, obviously his sale price um, is certainly very well known and everybody knows who he is and what he is, um, his bloodline, where he was bred, how he, how he was bred and, um, and, the, and the type of the animal that he is. So 
And how many calves would you be hoping to to get out of 10 straws? I I, I have no idea really how it works. So um, sort of what would be, what are you aiming for out of that? Oh, 10, no, no, look, um, so yeah, IVF certainly allows you to get more than one calf per straw. Um, it's still, it's still a, you know, a mix of, of, you know, live animal and science. So you might end up, with a couple out of a straw, you could end up with twenty. Like it's um, still it's still a gamble, but you can certainly hope to achieve more than one per straw. And you mentioned your your relatively new stud. How long have you had the property? Uh, we bought our little block in two thousand and sixteen, and we've sort of taken a fair, you know, a fairly solid road since twenty twenty when we bought our leading heifer off Brett Nobs at NCC. That is Pam Pritchard speaking to Lily Nothlin about their big purchase this week at the Big Country Brahmin Sale. Just to share a few extra results with you, when we look at the Red Brahmin Bulls, the average price there was almost $15,000 and the top price, $160,000. The Grey Brahmin Bulls, the average price... A bit smaller than the Red Brahmins, actually. $14,287 was the average. Top price there, though, $170,000. It is time now in the Country Hour to head to the sale yards. With all the latest prices out of Dublin, here is John Traeger. Good afternoon. Numbers remain similar as agents offered 150 live weight and open oxen cattle to the usual field of trade and processor buyers, feeders and restockers. Prices remain similar to the previous sale with some wide variations reflecting the mixed quality of the offering. Yearling steers sold from 298 to a top of 434 cents as yearling heifers range from 330 to 392 cents. Cows of mostly heavier weights sold from 200 to 270 cents a kilo. This is John Traeger at the South Australian Livestock Exchange for MLA's National Livestock Reporting Service and the Country Hour. Thank you for that, John. The Galbray Express livestock vessel is due in at the Darwin port tomorrow. I'm told feeders steers to Indonesia fetching around $4.20, $4.30 a kilo at the moment and that a lot of cattle have been bought out of Queensland to help fill some of these ships. In terms in terms of the big country Brahmin sale, I should have mentioned that all up the sale grossed more than $5.4 million. If you'd like to learn more about the sale and, and more about that astonishing money that was forked out for the semen straws, there is an article up on the ABC Rural website right now. Uh, that's all we've got time for on today's Country Hour. If you've missed any of it, including our delicious chat about Wagyu, you can find it all via our podcast. Keep it rural. <laughs>